short pause we're just working out the technology here so uh hopefully we're going live if you are watching and you're able to see this please just send me a message uh i think we're live yeah we're live so there we are and welcome to uh the first of these live uh live streams from here in the office uh, they'll be in various places. They might be from home. They might be here in the office during the lockdown or, or in different kinds of places. Who knows? We'll find out as the weeks go ahead. A long time ago, back in the days when we thought that uh, Periscope was going to be the game changer in terms of media and how we shared uh, our video content, I used to run this broadcast once a week called Ask the Pasta. And it was great fun as people from all over the world would just chime in with a question, whatever it was that was bothering them about church, faith, life, whatever. And I'd have a go at asking, answering. If I couldn't, then maybe I'd go away and do some research and then come back and try and find out the answers. And uh, it was a great platform and it was good fun to do. But Periscope as a platform kind of faded and life got busy. But I really wanted to try it again and to do that here on Facebook Live instead, uh, because I think the conversation that we can have is probably going to be richer here than it was able to be on Periscope. So if you're tuning in, uh, then there should be space somewhere for you to ask a question. And hopefully I'll see that as uh, they come up on the screen. Uh, Ziggy, an old friend of mine, says hi. Uh, and Ziggy and I used to do some mission and some evangelism together a long time ago. Uh, if you know me now, it's hard to believe being such a big guy, but we used to run a whole evangelism ministry based on basketball, of all things, back in, uh, in Northampton. So Ziggy, it's good to see you. Thanks for that. That tells me that it's working and that you can see me. That's really good. Earlier in the week, I put a post up and asked if there were some questions for people to get in touch and to ask those questions. And a number of people have. So uh, I thought we'd look at those first. But if you have a question and you're tuning in, then please do feel free to ask your question here in the comments and I'll try and get to it. If I flick between screens, it's because I've got my iPad here that had the questions that people originally asked. I'm looking here at a laptop and on this laptop is uh, the live image that you're seeing. And then over here is uh, another feed so that I can just check questions that are coming in in case I miss them on this screen. Um, Paul Melrish was in touch. And Paul is uh, a friend from a long time ago, uh, again, back in Northampton. So two Northampton friends towards the start of this, which is good. And Paul asked, what is my favorite color? Which seems like a really good question to start off with, I think. And uh, well, here's the big clue, uh, yellow. I just love the color yellow. There's something about yellow which is tremendous. It lifts my spirit, it's positive, it's happy, it's sunny, it's all of those things. Unfortunately, it doesn't suit me as a color to wear, but I do like yellow. So there we go, that perhaps tells you something about me and about where kind of I get my energy from. It's a very kind of, I guess, loud, noticeable color. And uh, so, but it's got nothing at all to do with church or anything. It's just Paul being silly and doing what old friends do, which is asking a daft question. Um, and then a slightly more serious question came in from Tracy, which is, when might the lockdown end? And I did reply online and say, well, I think she maybe had me confused with a clairvoyant. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, in uh, in an hour's time or so, there'll be another one of our daily press briefings from the government, and who knows. Uh, what they'll tell us this time. We do need to pray for the government. Uh, but clearly, there's a sense that the lockdown isn't going to end for a long time, um, a number of more weeks, followed by many months, I think, of restrictions on things that we'll do. And so 
and in one sense, it's a flippant question, but it's a really serious one because it sets the context for where we are right now. Right now, we're living in a season of restriction. We're living in a season of what some have talked about and tried to understand as a kind of exile. An exile is when you have your home and your place in one location, but something's happened and you've had to move. You're no longer able to be where home is. And in terms of church community, my guess is many of us feel like we're in an exile situation. The normal places we'd go to for community life, for gathered worship, for action and service and mission, fellowship, encouragement, prayer, all of those things have moved and have changed. So this lockdown question kind of gets to the heart of what's happening for us all right now. And I'm here in London, but right across the world, people are in a season of restriction. And I have some big questions about this that maybe in the weeks ahead we'll explore together. I don't know, but I have questions like, is this an exile that we will just go through and come out the other side of and return to normal life? Just it's a blip. Is this an exile that we will go through that's like a marginal or a liminal experience? And we'll go through that into a brave new world where something very different happens. Or is this a kind of marginal exile experience where we get a chance to step outside of our ordinary and have a season of looking at ourselves and figuring out who we are and who we're meant to be, looking at our context and seeing that new, asking the questions about what kind of people are we really meant to be? What are the things that we're really meant to be doing? as this season where we're being challenged to use lots of new technology and to meet in creative ways as we go through this, will that change how we meet and organize afterwards? So when will this lockdown end? I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks for the church, maybe it ends for us when we grapple with all that God has for us in this season. Um, So I don't think God sent this. I'd be really clear on that, but I think God might be using it to hone and shape and challenge and help us figure out who we're meant to be and the kind of things that we're meant to be doing. Um, We move on in the questions and uh, uh, William uh, Bill Fernihoff asks the question uh, about Romans and it's a great question. Why is Romans so hard to make sense of? And when Bill talks about Romans, he's talking about Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which you'll find in the New Testament. It's one of the earlier letters in the New Testament. The New Testament is organized, first of all, with those four biographies of the life of Jesus, those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, followed by Acts. And the Acts of the Apostles is the story of the very, very beginnings of the church, that early church. Uh, that translates from being this small group of believers in uh, Jerusalem, within Judaism, and grows and becomes a movement that is changing the world, that welcomes people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, that translates what has been done only through the Jewish people, God's relating to human beings, into something worldwide and universal, that God now is dealing with the whole of humanity that God's spirit comes upon not just Jewish people, but upon all people, uh, where not just one small group of people now get to know what it is to live in relationship with God and be a demonstration of that, 
but that all people in the world get to do that, where God's dream of uh, humanity, women and men together living in union with one another and with him, becomes a possibility. That's what's happening in Acts. We're seeing how the first believers in Jesus worked out how life should be lived in the gap between his ascension into heaven and the time he comes again, whenever that might be. And I know there's lots of prophets and doomsayers suggesting that it might be next week. I don't know. But the book of, uh, of the Acts of the Apostles describes that early church. It describes the kind of energy and the power and the dynamism of it. It describes for us how they worked out what it meant to be faithful to all that God had revealed to his people, the Jews, and all that he was doing now amongst the Jews and the Gentiles. And that word Gentile means those who are not Jewish. That's what it means. And a key figure in that book, The Acts of the Apostles, one of those very first early leaders in the church, who was a great thinker and a great activist and who planted vast swathes of the beginnings of the Christian church, was this man called Paul. And it's important that we understand who Paul was. He wasn't just a wise man. He wasn't just a scholar, although he was those things. He wasn't just a man of great passion, although he was that too. He was somebody who grew up with this great hope that one day God would send a Messiah. And that Messiah would be a Jewish leader. And that Messiah would be somebody who would come and would restore the Jewish nation and make it great once more. And Paul really believed that. He was a Pharisee, which meant he was part of a group of people who really wanted the nation of Israel, all those who called themselves Jewish, to be holy and to behave as the law commanded and as the law desired. You know, the Pharisees had this idea that if everybody, if all the Jewish people, sorry, would just obey all of the law for just one day, keep the law for just one day, then the Messiah would come. That's why they loved all these laws and these rules and these regulations, because they felt if they could just get people to keep the laws and the regulations and the rules, then God would send his Messiah and everything would be okay. And that's kind of where Paul came from. That was his thinking. That's where he grew up. And that's the kind of background to his life. And and he then sees this group of people who say, Messiah's come. This guy, Jesus, was the Messiah. And Paul is incensed because not only they're not keeping the law they're blaspheming and they're talking this heresy and he was one of those who longed for the messiah to come but knew that when messiah came that would all be about the restoration of jerusalem about establishing a temple and a throne and all kinds of things and jesus didn't do that in his eyes so paul persecuted the church He got permission to go and find out where these groups of Jewish people who were claiming Jesus is the Messiah, where they were, and then arrest them and bring them for trial. He was there when the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned. He stood by approving, carrying the coats of those lobbing the stones. And yet this Paul, this passionate, clever man, he has this vision as he's traveling to go and persecute some Christians on the road towards Damascus. He has this vision, and it's a blinding vision, a light that causes him to not be able to see. He's completely dazzled by it, and a voice that challenges him. Why on earth are you persecuting me? It's like God says, you have this tremendous passion and this tremendous desire to serve me. Why are you now persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul realizes it's Jesus. It's Jesus. 
and his life is transformed. And this man, Paul, then dedicates the rest of his life with that same passion, that same intellect, that same zeal to taking this message that Jesus is the Messiah and understanding what that is to not just a Jewish audience, but a worldwide audience, because he realizes everybody needs to hear this news that God has sent his Messiah and it was his own son, Jesus. Now, Bill asks, why is Romans so hard to understand? And there's no fluke that Romans follows this book of Acts. It was written by Paul. Lots of conversation about whether it was really him or not. But none of the early church leaders had any doubt from the very beginnings of this letter being discovered, uh, which was probably you know within the first 60 years of, uh, of the time of Jesus. Um, from from the very earliest time that this letter was discovered and was being shared and was being read and was being used from the first people writing about it and commenting on it it was always held to be a letter of paul so we've got this letter from paul it's not right at the beginning of his ministry in fact it's probably a bit further towards the end of his ministry he's had several missionary journeys and as we read romans uh, and i encourage you to do that to see some of what it is that bill might be referring to when he says it's hard to understand to, to read it all through. Uh, and what you'll discover as you do that is that he makes reference to trips that he's made, visits that he's done. And he says to the church in Rome, that he's longing to come and visit them as he goes on a trip to Spain. We think it's a trip he probably was not able to make. And uh, uh, in fact, he was then you know, jailed and went on trial and uh, probably lost his life in Rome eventually. But at the time he's writing this letter, there's a number of things that he's trying to do. The first thing he's trying to do is he's he's writing to a church that he's not been to personally. He's not visited that church before. Other people have founded that church. And so some of Paul's letters uh, are about him addressing an issue, a question, some fault, some some controversy they've got themselves into, some mistake they've made, something they're grappling with, something they don't understand, and he'll write to them and try and bring a correction or some inspiration or some wisdom or insight. This letter's different from that. There isn't a key question that he's answering. There isn't a controversy that he's addressing. That's not what's happening here. Instead, he's writing to this church that he's not met, and he's, he's kind of trying to make sure that they've understood properly the gospel. Paul? really understands the gospel and he feels that he's got a way of helping other people to understand that gospel but this church in rome although it probably has a few jewish people in it is not primarily a group of jewish people so these aren't people who've had that long story of the people of israel and god's dealing with the people of israel and so he's reaching this audience and he's writing to this group of people this church there and they don't understand the whole of the story. They don't understand the setting of Jesus' story in the context of what God has done historically through the Jews. So he wants to help this church in, in Rome understand the fullness of the gospel. He's keen that they really grasp some big issues around sin, around what the effects of that are, what happens when we choose to live the life that we want rather than the life that God wants. What are the consequences of that? What has God done about that? And then who is Jesus? What God's like? How is God going to make all things new? So it is Paul's gospel message condensed into this rather long letter. His desire then is to teach this church of people he's never met before to make sure they've understood the full gospel. He's kind of 
wanting them also in this, the second thing, I guess, is to understand him and to understand his story and how he's responded to the gospel, why it is he has dedicated the rest of his life to, uh, to following Jesus and to preaching this gospel. Of course, alongside both of those two things, he wants people to know Jesus and to put their faith and their trust in him. And he wants to tell them how to do that. So because it's trying to do all of those things, it's pretty complex. Paul, in most of his other letters, as I said earlier, is, is addressing a, a question or a problem. Here, he wants to just lay out the whole of the gospel message in all of its glory. And he's not holding back from challenging them intellectually and presenting them with concepts and ideas that he knows they're going to have to wrestle with. And so he sends it with Phoebe, this letter, who is a deacon from the early church. And she takes it and the idea behind all of these kind of envoys who would take letters is that they would understand the letter and they would teach it. So he has spelt out this very, very complex letter and it's the gospel in this complex letter, but knowing that he's sending it with Phoebe. And Phoebe is going to be able to teach the first hearers of this letter, the church in Rome, what it is Paul meant. So why is Romans so difficult? Because it's trying to do a lot. Because it's writing to a group of people who need a lot of context setting. We need to grapple with that and make sure that we're understanding the concept. Why is it so hard? Well, sometimes it's hard because we haven't got a Phoebe. And we really need a Phoebe. So uh, when we have a Phoebe, then... Uh, we're able to uh, deal with some of that and we'll find out why uh, this very hard letter uh, doesn't have to be quite so hard for us. Thanks for the question, Bill. I hope that moves towards something of an answer. If, uh, as I'm sure you know, Bill, I say this not because you don't know it, but perhaps it's helpful for others. One of the things that I would recommend people do is to read a letter all the way through, just to kind of read the whole thing and then go back and to begin again slower and reading it through a bit more carefully and meditatively, um, and with a commentary, a really good Bible commentary, which will hold our hand as we walk through a text and help us with the concepts, the ideas, setting them in a context and helping us think of other places that we might want to look. So I'd encourage you to get a few decent commentaries. Um, and uh, if you're a theologian already, you don't need me to recommend you a, a commentary. But if you're just beginning and you're just kind of wanting to take some steps into understanding, then the Bible Speaks Today series will really hold your hand well. The Tyndale series, the um, SCM or, uh, or Bezos, Brezos theological commentary series are really very, very good at helping us to get a grasp on what's happening here. So thanks for that, Bill. That's Romans. We all need a Phoebe. We need somebody that God's put in our lives who will help us to understand the tough stuff. Um, there's a couple of other questions and I'm not seeing any that have come in. So uh, I'm gonna keep going with these other questions um, as well. So Richard then asks a question, uh, what's the largest number of people I've baptized in one go, in one ceremony? I scratched my head on this because there've been a number of times that it's been sort of four or five. I think six is probably the most. And uh, that was back in, uh, I had to really wrap my brains, June 1993, uh, the year that Susanna and I were married, 27 years ago. And it was in the North Sea on Fraysthorpe Beach, which is just near Bridlington. 
And the church I was in at the time and the church I was working for, Beverly Community Church, had had a number of people who'd come to faith uh, over the course of several months and over the winter. And so we decided that we would go and baptize down in the sea. And uh, it was like baptizing people in liquid nitrogen. It was really super cold. I confess to you that uh, it was one of those times when I really wish that all of the candidates had come out into the water so that we could just quickly baptize them one after the other. But the person I was baptizing with, a guy called Mark Warner, he and I were standing there as the first candidate slowly waded through the water to us and then we baptized them and then they slowly went back and the next one came and it really was a very, very cold thing, but tremendous, tremendous to baptize outside. And uh, within that group were people I'd known a very long time who I'd kind of done a bit of my Christian growing up with and who had known Jesus a long time and were kind of coming around to getting baptized. And others were very young Christians, new believers, especially from a council estate in Beverly and East Yorkshire, who God had set free from some really, really difficult and dark stuff. And so it was a tremendous celebration. And there were, I guess, about 30 of us down on the beach for the baptism service, and then lots of other bystanders who came just to watch what we were doing. So I think as I look back, six is probably the most that I've ever baptized. Um, as I look through the questions, uh, there's only a couple more actually. So if you have a question, we're probably gonna have time to get there. We've only been going 20 something minutes and uh, my plan was that this would be up to about 40 minutes top. So if we run out of questions before then that's absolutely fine. Uh, but if you have a question, please do comment and let us know. Um, Richard asked the second question, and it's quite a tough question, so I'm going to carry on with this. I was tempted to swap it for Kevin's question, which will come later, which is a bit more flippant, but I will deal with your question, Richard. Richard asks, have I ever had a crisis of faith? Now, I've had lots of crises in my life, uh, but a crisis of faith, if by a crisis of faith, do you mean has there come a time in my life since I became a follower of Jesus where I thought, God's not real, this is all false, this is all a lie, uh, then no, not a single time, never. I became a Christian when I was 15 and just a few months, a similar age to my son now, that sort of age. And for me, I became a Christian and the reason for that was that I had a spiritual encounter. I knew that God is real. Um, I had met somebody uh, while I was out causing some mischief with some friends, and I'll tell you that story another time, but who shared with me a gospel message in a way that I'd never ever heard it, understood it before, never realized it before. And at the heart of what he shared with me was this idea that the reason Jesus had come into the world was for me, and for you, and for all of us, but was for me. There was a kind of personal element to this. I don't think I'd ever heard before then, or at least registered before then, this idea that part of what was happening on the cross is that Jesus was suffering for the wrong things that I'd done, was taking the punishment for me. It's not everything that's happening on the cross, but a significant part of what's happening on the cross. And I'd never heard that, like really heard it, really understood that Jesus died for me. I'd never got that. And so I twigged that if this was real, if this was true, then that was a game changer. That meant everything changed. If, if God is real, if he loved me so much that he would send his son, 
into the world to demonstrate for me the way to God, to show me the best life that I could live, to teach me how human relationships should be lived, to die in my place on the cross, to defeat death, to win the victory over death, to open up the gates of heaven, to reveal that violence is not the end of the human story, to do away with all the dividing walls of hostility that exist between people groups on the earth. If Jesus would do all of that, I understand now. At the time, I didn't know all of that stuff. All I know was Jesus died for me. But if Jesus would do that for me, then it changes everything. We can't just kind of carry on living that way. Like, you know, if somebody jumped in front of a car and pushed you out the way that was going to hit you, and they were hurt or they were killed, you wouldn't just brush that off and forget their name and do nothing about it. There'd be a sense in you of gratitude and of a different sense of your own value and the value of that act because you were in it and it was personal. It wasn't just that somebody did that for somebody else, but they did it for you. So I went home that night having heard this and lay on my bed as a 15 and a few months old kid saying, well, God, if you're there, I want to know. If you're there, I want to experience that. I want to know that you're real. And in that moment, lying on my bed, I became very aware that God was there, that I was not alone. There was a tremendous sense of what I, I now have the language that I can put on there that I probably didn't have then, a tremendous sense of peace and hope and security. I felt safe, which I have to confess wasn't always the case when I was growing up. And so I knew that God was there because he'd shown me that he was there and as real to me as the nose on my face is, as the fingers on my hand are, I knew that God was real. And it was so real that there has never been a time in my life from that day to this that I've doubted that God is real. So no, I've never had a crisis of faith in terms of is God real? Have there been times in my life when I have had a profound sense of challenge of what it means to follow him and great confusion and angst and pain? Yes, yes. I've shared in church before and I share it here that there was certainly one time when I wondered if I would be able to continue in ministry and it was a time when Susanna and I were hoping for a child, very open to God giving us a child as the language that we use, but really there was a strong longing within each of us from, for us to be parents, to have a child. And we were trying and there was nothing happening. And I remember uh, a time uh, when I was working with Sovereign Ministries, uh, a ministry led by Clive Caulfield, who's uh, now an Elim minister up in St. Albans, but we used to run training conferences around this country and, and all over the world. And uh, Clive used to go and teach in India and in America and Nigeria and things. And I used to be part of the teaching team here in the UK. And we would take our conferences up and down the country, as well as having people come and visit us in our offices in Lancaster for prayer. And one time I was up on the Shetland Islands and we were teaching our main uh, course there. Uh, Clive had been teaching with me in the weekend and then he was heading off to India and I stayed up in the Shetland Islands to lead a small team of people 
who were praying for folks and doing some follow-up work to the conference that we've been teaching. And a day or two into our time there, just before our team time together as we're going to pray and worship together, we received a phone call from the office in Lancaster. And it was some news catching up and how are things going and do you need anything and all that kind of stuff. But also uh, a, a kind of good news phone call. Hey, Jonathan, do you remember this couple? You and Sheila, another lady in our team, had, had met them and prayed to them a few months ago. Well, they're pregnant. Isn't that wonderful? And of course, it is wonderful. And of course, what I should have done was celebrate and have my heart full of joy because of what God had done in their lives. But it really broke me. Uh, I think there was the third couple that we prayed for as a ministry or for me and others individually who were longing for children who'd become pregnant. And it really kind of cut deep. There was a moment in me of thinking, I don't know why my prayer isn't being answered for us. We're praying for these others, but it's not happening. And I crumpled. I, we went into a, a time together as a team of prayer and of worship. And as we just prayed together, I just crumpled on the floor and I was in floods of tears and snot and <laughs> a wet patch there lying there, broken, utterly broken. And in that moment, not entirely sure that I wanted to carry on in some ways in terms of ministry, just thinking, I just don't get it. I was utterly confused and in great pain because we had this deep longing for children that wasn't happening for us. Um, now, in that moment, there are things that happened. Team members prayed over me. One of our worship team came and played over me. Uh, she played the flute and she began to play, This is the Air I Breathe. And God just somehow spoke to me in that song about drawing strength from him and drawing close to him. And I knew God was in that moment, but it was a bit of a dark night of the soul type season where for me, I was wrestling for a very long time with God about why he wasn't answering my prayer and why it was that others were having children and Susanna and I couldn't. And uh, that part of our story, you know, it was five years after that, something like that, that we had our first child, our son, and we praise God for that. But I needed the help of friends and other wise ministers to counsel me and get me through a really, really dark time when I just could never turn my back on God and deny his existence, but got to the place of saying, I'm just not sure I can work for you anymore um, because, uh, because of this very painful issue in our own lives. So have I had a crisis of faith? I think that's probably the closest, and that would be the darkest moments, I think. Sarah and I have had difficulties in our marriage at times. Very early in our marriage, we had some real fiery times and kind of touch-and-go moments. But I think in terms of bringing me to the point of a deep crisis, that's probably probably the most uh, the most difficult time. Well, uh, Kevin asks a great question here, and Kevin's question is: Who in the who in the Bible had the greatest beard? Uh, so that's a two-part question. Um, I'm not sure about who had the greatest beard. There are plenty of beards there. And uh, if you're interested in this subject, then so I'm just looking over here to check for other questions. Uh, that's okay. If you're interested in the subject, I want to recommend a book to you, which is called Beard Theology. Uh, I should have, this letter, this, this question from Kevin just came in recently. I had a look around in the study here, and I'm pretty sure that beard theology is still at home. So maybe next week I'll bring it in with me and I'll wave it at the camera. Uh, but a great beard a book, sorry, called Beard Theology by the Church Mouse, who is uh, 
uh, somebody who writes on Twitter. And it's a really great little book and I want to encourage you to read it because it does talk about the place of beards in the Bible and, uh, and in Christian uh, theology and tradition. So basically beards being a sign of manliness and, uh, and really men's men in some parts of the church needing to be ministers. So insisting that men have beards, uh, which is quite an amusing book. I don't wear this because I think that only men can be ministers. Uh, that would be a million miles from the truth. Who had the best beard in the Bible? I, I really don't know. I mean, I think if we look at some of those Bible stories, I'm not thinking that the greatest story ever told was probably filmed on location, but Moses had a pretty mighty beard in that. However, there is somebody whose beard does inspire me. I'm going to ask Nathaniel just to kind of zoom the camera up a little bit and just to move it. So forgive the shaky camera. There we go. That man there had a fine beard and uh, was quoted as saying that the, the development of a beard was a very healthy habit or a very healthy hobby or a very healthy pastime for a Christian minister. And uh, he certainly encouraged that a big beard would give authority and gravitas to a message. That man there is uh, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, I used to have him facing me and facing my desk, but I couldn't cope with him looking down on me while I was preparing messages. Way too much pressure for me. Uh, so now he sits behind me. Um, but there he is looking over my shoulder. Good old Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who had a mighty fine beard. Well, we don't seem to have any other questions and none coming in on the live stream here. Last chance then to comment if you wanted to with a question. Otherwise... I think this is going to be the end of our first Ask the Pastor. Uh, thank you for, uh, for joining me for this. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you want to leave comments uh, or questions for the next Ask the Pastor, please feel free to do so and we'll pick those up next week. Otherwise, God bless you. May God watch over you, protect you and your loved ones. And in this season of exile, of liminality, of living in the margins, whatever it might be, however long this lockdown lasts, I pray that you'd know God in it and through it and all that he wants you to learn, you would learn and all that he wants you to do, you would do. God bless you.